Glory days, well, they pass you by. Glory days, in the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days, glory days. When Bruce Springsteen wrote this song in 1984, it was almost as if he knew the wink of a young girl's eye was born in 1927 on the streets of Philadelphia. On the exact same day Charles Lindbergh landed his Spirit of St. Louis in France, being the first aviator to cross the Atlantic alone, nonstop. And today's guest has been going nonstop since 1927, and on this very, very special episode of Financially Speaking, you will meet 92-year-old B. Slater, a.k.a. Queen B., as little Stephen Van Zandt calls her, but I just call her mom. My goal today is for you to hear moments from her life from both a personal and, of course, a financial perspective. So I bet some of you are sitting there wondering, seriously, Mitch, you're interviewing your mother? That's the best guest you can get for your podcast? And the answer is exactly yes. My mom is the perfect guest for my show, as people her age have wisdom of great value to all, but sadly few listen. But not today. The stories you are about to hear are real. And if life is an education, B has a PhD in positive thinking and not sitting still. Welcome to Financially Speaking, Mom. Thank you, Mitch. Well, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And although it is customary to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, as Julie Andrews sang, I want to start in your 90th year because you had a double shot of wow. So why don't you tell us what happened? Well, I said to, to you, Mitch, that I always wanted to go to one of Stevie Van Zandt's concerts. And you said, okay, we can go. He's going to be in Staten Island, and that would be nice. It's a nice stadium, uh, auditorium. So I said, fine. So you wanted to do a little video of me accepting your invitation to go to the show, and you even bought me a T-shirt with Stevie's picture on it. And you made the video, and you decided that you were going to put it on um not Facebook. Where did you put it on? On Twitter. On Twitter, right. Well, Stevie saw it, and he was very impressed. And Mitchell had met Stevie and his wife, and they contacted Mitchell, and they said, you know, I have an idea. And Mitchell said to Stevie, what, what do you want to do? He said, do you think your mother would like to introduce me? It's going to be my new song, and I would like to have her do that. So Mitch talked to me, and I said, you know, I think I would do that. It would be very exciting. I don't think I've ever been on a stage except at a school play at Bryant School in Philadelphia, and I may be the eighth grade or something. So we got all the information. We got to the theater very early. There was a rehearsal, and they got me all set up, and Stephen showed me what they were going to do, and he showed me how to hold the mic and, and how to read everything that they would have on the uh, teleprompter. Uh, teleprompters. So we rehearsed a couple times, and he said, you'll do fine. And I kept saying to him, well, I hope I don't disappoint you. He said, no, you'll be fine. Well, lo and behold, the show started. And I thought they were going to keep the curtains open because they had the band and it really looked nice and all the dancers. He said, oh no, we're closing the curtain and you're gonna be on the spotlight. Well, that was a little overpowering for me, but I said, okay, let's do it. And we did. And you know what? I really brought down the house. 
they were laughing and screaming and and I wondered how did I really do well my daughter Diane came with us and afterwards she said mom you were great you didn't miss a word you did fine so she crushed that, it folks and yeah. we will link to that video for yeah. you <laughs> so that was great and then I walked off and I felt like a real celebrity people wanted to keep touching my hand you know when you walk down an aisle and of course we watched the whole show and after people came up they wanted to take a selfie with me I was 90 at the time I said what do you want no you look great so that was very exciting and that was the first right of my performance right and after that there was a lot of press you know Steve Van Zant's obviously a big rock and roll hall of famer and there was a lot of press all over the place and I guess we fast forward, you know, after a lot of these articles came out in a variety of uh, online publications and, and local local publications. And then what happened next? Well, someone had seen the show, and they lived in Springfield, where I live. And they were somehow connected with J-Date, which I knew nothing about. I never did anything with that. And the woman from the uh, that lived in Springfield was in touch with my neighbor. She knew her. And she said, who was it in Springfield that was on Stevie Van Zandt? And my neighbor said, oh, my God, that's my neighbor, my next-door neighbor, B. She said, well, you know, they're going to have a little um, audition. They're looking for older women to be on a commercial. And so my neighbor said, well, I'll give you her name. And she called, but she called Mitchell because he's my agent. (laughs) So he took care of it. And Mitchell called my son in North Carolina and said, what do you think of this? He said, oh, I don't think mom will want to do this. Well, I was in King's Supermarket, and I remember I was buying a steak. And Mitchell called me, and he told me. And he said, well, Jeffrey doesn't think you want to do it. I said, what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in. When do I go? And it was the week before Thanksgiving, and we went into the city, and a really wonderful casting agency, Paul and Donna Goldstein. It was kind of like a Woody Allen film. There were all these old Jewish women, yentas, which was the uh, expression that they wanted for the campaign. And then you had your audition. How did that go? We went in. I went with my granddaughter, Georgia and Mitch, and I went and I did the audition, and they give you a script where you tell a joke. Well, I screwed up the joke. But they said, we don't care. It was fine. And the audition, which should have lasted about five minutes, we were in there about a half hour. They were having a great time with me, and I was enjoying it. And they loved it. And next thing you know, I got picked she with got a couple the gig. other women right. that were there. Right, but you were hired as the lead yenta. I was the leading one. Which means she gets paid more than the I other yentas. I got more money. Right. Right, that's right. And I even ended up with the J-Day jacket. Right. <laughs> so then a few weeks later, we go into Brooklyn, where they're going to shoot, Brooklyn, and they've hired Mitchell Randall and, Ford. Uh, Leslie, right. Mitchell's wife, and we wanted to see, because we heard there were billboards. Well, first let's talk about the experience, oh, the experience. Of, of shooting it. Oh, of shooting yeah. it. It was wonderful. They were really terrific. We got there. First, they put out food for breakfast, and I met all the women. They were lovely. I think I was the oldest of all of them, but we got along fine. It was very comfortable. They had nice chairs to sit, and they let Mitchell stay with me, but he had to go in another room because he wasn't going to leave Brooklyn, and I think that most of them are from New York. Anyway, 
it took a long time. They took a lot of pictures. They hired a uh, an award-winning photographer, Randall oh, Ford, who's done wonderful. covers of magazines and has written his beautiful photo uh, essays on animals uh, specifically. Oh, he, was, he was wonderful and very, very patient right. with a lot of all. Well, he was used to working with lions and tigers yeah, yeah. and literally gorillas, so uh, a bunch Jewish of Jewish yentas, no problem. And they gave us certain outfits to wear. They put different things on us. And we were there a whole day, right. and they even brought out lunch. I mean, they were—they couldn't have been nicer. So fast forward now, it's about six weeks later, it's January, and all of a sudden, yeah, my, we didn't even know the no. campaign had started. And my son, the one from North Carolina, his friend lives in New York, and he called him. He said, Jeffrey, I just saw your mother on a poster on near the station, near the uh, subway stop. subway stops. He said, what's going on? And then he told them. So, of course, we went in. We had to see it all. And then we went to, into Brooklyn to the cheesecake. Uh, Junior's Cheesecake. Junior's Cheesecake. And they had this, oh, my God, this billboard above the store. On Flatbush Avenue. It's Flatbush one of the classic Avenue. billboards in New York. And oh years ago, God. the Brooklyn Dodgers played at a stadium that was right near That's there. That's right. That's right. And we stood there, and uh, Leslie walked me across the street and there was a young couple standing there, and we're looking at the billboard. And they said, is that you? And I said, yeah, that's me. And we went in, and they were very nice. They gave me a free cheesecake, <laughs> but we did have lunch there. And then we went around New York, and we found different different uh, billboards. Yeah, there were over there were over 300 of these um, subway stops and charging stations and and giant billboards for the city. It was it was an incredible experience and, uh, and um, even though a lot of people didn't know who I was or, or what who, who was on the billboard, they would tell people I saw the greatest billboard with this lady. She wasn't so young. And uh, I think uh, somebody found out and they said, "Oh my god, that's B. Slater. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It was an incredible experience. So as we're recording the podcast, you're 92 years old, and you've seen so many amazing things in your lifetime, really an eyewitness to the 20th century. So what is your earliest memory from childhood? Well, we I was about a year or so old when we moved to Catherine Street, West Philadelphia, and it was a wonderful, wonderful street, all young people, young couples, young children. My sister was two and a half years older than me, and we shared a room. I'll never, I can picture that room like it was yesterday. And we played on the porch, and we played outside. It was wonderful. And we went to school. There was a local school and local shopping. And one of my very first memories I really was a tomboy. I wanted to ride a bike. I wanted to play, I think it was called Territory with a penknife. So they got me a penknife and we used to play stoop and I rode a bike. Then I guess I forgot exactly the year and I remember we were standing on our porch and we heard about Amelia Earhart. I never forgot that. And of course it was a lot of publication and in those years, you got newspapers twice. And they had a morning news, and they had an, after, an evening news. So there was a lot of news. And also, when the Hindenburg crashed, I remember that very clearly. So these are very vivid memories right. because we all, the neighbors, everyone was so friendly sure. and together. And these are the early 1930s. Amelia Earhart yeah. uh, was one of the first 
really f- famous female um, oh, aviators wow. and, yes. and her, her was flying uh, aviator similar right. to what Lindbergh did but unfortunately she never made it yeah um, so let's um, let's talk about the depression era how did you feel during those moments watching so many people especially not not just around the country but in your neighborhood struggle well to tell you the truth I did not know anything about the depression I guess because my father was a photographer, and he had his own business. And I guess in those years, there were no credit cards, and the money came in, you know, or by check. So we never were without food. The only thing I remember, but I didn't really know what it was, people would ring your doorbell, and they would sell needles and pins and shoelaces. I just remember that like it was yesterday. But my sister, she remembered a family coming to the door, they had nothing to eat. And my mother brought them in the house and sat them down and made them a dinner. That, that she told me, I just did not remember that because I was much younger. But the depression, as far as we were concerned, my father had a car and he had a truck with a camera on it. What was his, his business? His business, he was the Quaker Photo Service. He was a commercial photographer right. at 914 with, Walnut Street in but, Philadelphia. But let's tell a little bit about George Ginsburg, my grandfather, like, who yes. came to the United States from Russia when he was 10, when years, he was 10 old, years old. All both, alone. Right. Both of his parents had died. He had two sisters that remained in Russia. All of his money was stolen on his way to Ellis Island, and fortunately, he had an uncle in Newark, New Jersey, who taught him a craft. Brought him in, and my uncle, my uncle Henry Ginsburg, was a Newark photographer. Was a photographer. Was the Newark Photo Service, and they gave my father a home, and they took care of him, and he went to school, and he learned my uncle's trade. He learned to be a photographer. And that, that's really what helped get through the Depression. And that, that helped during the Depression. He was still able to have a business. He, you know, was we married and had children. So there was always money. We did have the uh, rationing for the gas. I remember that. And uh, it, it was not easy for people, but I never really f- said I felt it. I mean, I know friends have told me their parents lost their home. Mm-hmm. We lived in an apartment. We didn't own our home. Right, which so, I think is a big difference. So that was right. a big difference. Right, you were able to pay and the I rent. I think we paid forty-two fifty was the rent. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it sounds ridiculous. And we had two bedrooms, a bath, a living room, a dining room, mm-hmm. a kitchen, and a front porch. Amazing. And also, we had coal. We did not have oil heat or gas heat. The coal man used to deliver the coal. Mm. And clean, I remember clean coal. that. So let's move forward to World War II in the early 1940s. Must have been very, very challenging it to was, say the least, was. you know. So, so for you, for many Americans, World War II never was a reality until December 7th, 1941. That's right. I Do had, you remember that specific oh, perfectly. day? perfectly. My dear cousin Marvin, he took Annette and I to the movies. I think it was around Annette's birthday, because her birthday was the 6th and the Pearl Harbor was the 7th. Do you remember the movie? I don't remember the movie. I wish <laughs> if Annette was still around. We could look it up. I'm sure we'd find it out. At the Cedar Theater, and we were coming home. He was walking us home on Catherine Street. They lived on Christian Street, two blocks away, and we heard the news. You know, it was devastating. My cousin Marvin, he left and he went. He went in the service. He became a lieutenant. He was wounded. He had some disabilities, but he came out of it. Thank goodness. 
and a very interesting story. He told this to his grandchild at school. They wanted the people to talk about the war, and he was shot. But in his pocket of his uniform, he had a metal cigarette box, uh, like a can, a tin, and the bullet landed on the box. It did not kill him. <laughs> and one of the little boys that heard the story said, why was he smoking? <laughs> now, that goes to show you the difference of the things that have happened. For, for him, smoking for him, saved his he life. He was saved. He <laughs> didn't sight in an eye. But he was a wonderful right. man. Right, but you had, you, had, you had, if I believe, some other relatives oh, that were in the I war. Oh, and then I had another dear sadly. cousin from Long Island, Leon Friedman. He was a bombardier, and he was lost and missing in action. And I never forgot he used to come to Philly and spend time with us. We loved Leon. It was really a sad thing. It must and have been very difficult. Do you remember the, uh, the end of the war? Oh, I remember the end of the war, how everybody... Thank goodness was excited. It was exciting, but it was sad. There were a lot that did not. We mentioned home. you mentioned rationing, for example. Oh, the Give rationing. us an example of what what you felt in the household by the rationing. Well, you had to be careful with the butter mm -hmm. and certain things, and you could. Uh, but my mother, my mother, you know, cook. We didn't go out to eat like it is today. The best place we used to love to go to Horn and Hardest, except on a special occasion, we went downtown to. Uh, Palumbo's was a uh, a very good Italian restaurant, like for Mother's Day or some special occasion, we would go to a uh, restaurant. But it was different. It was it was easy living, you know. It was the summertime. We had no air conditioning. We opened the doors at night. We slept with the doors open. Nobody got hurt. Nobody was robbed. I mean, it was it was a very simple way of life. Right. And you had friends, and we had good neighbors. It was truly a neighborhood. It was a neighborhood. It was a neighborhood. Was, we lived in a neighborhood. So a few years later, you met a really great man, my father, Jack, oh, in yes. and in 1948. At the Colony Surf Club. Right. He was a Wharton guy. He was at Penn. Um, and eventually, he and I became partners at Merrill Lynch. Sadly, we lost my dad 10 years ago this month. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your early days of marriage, deciding to move from an apartment to a house. Was that a very big decision? Well, we, we first of all, it was very hard to get apartments right after the war. So we looked around and around, and finally we were in East Orange, and we spotted this little, they were called garden apartments, sort of like a horseshoe shape. And it was a two-story, brand new, very pretty, and we said, you know, let's go look. Uh, I, maybe we saw an ad in the paper, that I can't recall. And we went up to the apartment, it was on the second floor, it was a one bedroom, brand, everything brand new, no one had lived there. And the owner came up to show us around, Mr. Bauer his name was. And we looked around and we liked it and we were looking out the, the living room window and he said to me and to dad, you know, look at that woman with that little boy in that little tailor tot. He said, that's my daughter, and that's my grandson, Richard. And Richard was about two and a half, three years old. And Norma was, his, was the mother. And we, he said, I'd like you to meet them. And we went downstairs. We took the apartment right away, and I think it was something like, I don't know if it was $90 or 85 It was... 
It was very good price. It was right. a good price. But then a few years later, you decided to look around, and you found in Springfield, New Jersey, yep. your first yep. house, we which we, we... We lived We lived there uh, four years, mm-hmm. and Norm and Al became very dear friends, and we both moved the same time. We looked around, and for some reason, and I don't know why, we wanted a ranch. We didn't want an up and down. Now, for those of you that don't know what a ranch is, because we found over the years that people do think there's horses and coyotes running around. Um, It's basically a one-floor house. (laughs) And there was an ad for some house in in Springfield, a ranch. They had built a few, and we were at the Tavern Restaurant in Newark, at Elizabeth Avenue in Newark, and we Jack called, and they had already rented it. So we start looking around, and we saw the ad for the house on Warwick Circle. It had been up for a year, and the price was too high. They could not sell it. They wanted twenty six five. It was a three-bedroom, one-and-a-half baths, and a lovely house. And they lowered the price, and we got the house for and here we are, 67 years later, in sitting house. in the living room of this house. Well, we did add on yes. when Mitchell was born. We added on more rooms, more baths, and we've loved this house. So when you got when you got in the house, you know, for most people, I know this was my experience, you, you kind of spend all your money yeah. to buy the house. What was that like when you first bought it? Did you... Was it was it difficult because now you had to go get furniture and yeah well we we needed we had some furniture from the apartment that we had gotten I guess wedding money and bought stuff and wedding money was not like it is today right but nothing cost us what it costs today and uh, my husband's parents were extremely generous and they did give us some money for the house mm-hmm. and then gradually we start getting furniture right. But when we moved in, and two weeks after we moved in, my daughter was going to be two years old. We had very little furniture in the living room, but all the family came. My parents were living in Philadelphia, my sister, my aunt and uncle, they all came. And we made dinner. We had a little party anyway. And gradually we got more furniture. And we, we just, you know, we just loved the house. So when you, when you, when you, after you bought the house, were you starting with dad and you having conversations about planning for the future? I guess what I'm asking is, was it really like father knows best and yes, you just trusted yes. your husband to figure it all out? Well, first of all, when I got married, my husband said, I don't want you to work. I said, How'd you feel about that? Well, I said, why? He says, no, you, you stay home. We'll have family. And, and then he had a very young brother. It was 17 years difference in age. And I used to love to take care of Robbie. Do you think Dad said that to you, that I don't want you to work, because it was sort of the macho thing of the time? It, it was just sort it, of, you know, the man been. works? It could have been. I mean, he didn't have such a big job. He worked in, uh, it was Bamberger's. Right. He was the safety director. Right, and, initially, uh, right. And I don't know, maybe he got mm-hmm. $25 a week. Right. And, but and we, you had not gone to university uh, no, or college. No, I did not go to college. Was that college. Any, something you had thought about or you had uh, had conversations with your parents about? I was not that interested. Uh, I don't think I was the great, well, I was a terrible math student. I know that. I was not that interested and I liked photography because I watched my father do it and I decided that I was going to take up and, and do child photography. My father gave me a nice camera 
I used to go on the trolley car. I didn't drive. And I would go to people that I knew or word of mouth and take pictures of children. And I've spoken to someone. He's, he's way late in his 80s now. I think almost 90. He still has the picture. <laughs> I spoke to him not long ago in Philadelphia. So obviously, we live in different times, but let's talk about having kids. In 1950, you mentioned my sister Diane was born, my brother Jeff in 54, and then surprise, surprise, uh, along I came in 1960. Were, now, were, were you thinking about how you would pay for our college or the expenses of raising a family at that point? Well, my husband and I talked about things, but... He was the really the sole breadwinner, so to speak, and he took care of everything. I wrote a few checks for certain things, and I had a cleaning woman, and I, you know, I paid her, and I, I think he gave me an allowance, and if I needed more, he gave it to me. He, he never, he never said you can't have this or that. Well, this is he basically season one of Mad Men you. happening here. Yeah. <laughs> but fast forward about, I guess, twenty years later. Your oldest son, my brother Jeff, and his wife started a brownie business called Rachel's Brownies that was extremely successful. They sold it everywhere from United Airlines to Amtrak. President Reagan gave a speech at their plant, and it was just a, an incredible recipe that just that just blew up thanks to the, the brilliance of both my brother and sister-in-law in, in knowing how to market it. But one of the things that they decided... Actually, what's the origin of you working for Rachel's Brownies? Well, because... Uh, I, I think you had a business. Jeffrey said to me, uh, a quick check had opened up in Springfield, and of course the Milburn Deli in Milburn, and he said, you know, maybe you ought to try to go to a couple of these stores, they're local, and see if you could represent us, we'll give you samples, and maybe your friend Norma will work with you. So I spoke to Norma, and she said, hey, that sounds pretty good, you know, the children were all grown. Well, Mitchell, I think you were still in high school or junior high or something. So Jeffrey would send us the brownies, and we each got a, another freezer. We kept and I kept one in my garage, and we got he would deliver. They would deliver them and put them in the freezer. And Norm and I, we we went to a few places where they knew us, right? And we went around, and then we started to go to places that didn't know us, and we started with Kings. And which is a supermarket chain which in is New a Jersey. Supermarket chain, and they were making the brownies for the freezer. It was like a uh, a pound package, and we went to all the kings. She took some, and I took some. Sometimes we went together, and we built up a little business. And her last name was Schaefer, and mine Slater. So it was the S and S company. And we, we did it for a few years, and we enjoyed it. And you made some money. And we made money, and I remember in particular. Did that, it must have felt really good to be earning good. Your, it did. You know, at that point. And one Valentine Day, we decided, Norm and I, were going to take our husbands out, <laughs> and we did. And we used our money. And it, it really worked out. And, of course, then, then Jeffrey, they were starting to thinking about selling the company. So everything changed for us. Right, but for but, a few years there, you had a, had a really good had a run good starting time, your own business. And we were young, and we could do it. That's and we really were in great. Good health. Well, you were you were true entrepreneurs, and uh, as my brother was. So obviously, we live in a very different time than your youth, and even after your kids have grown. So let's talk about some of the biggest changes in technology you've witnessed. Some for the good, and some for the bad. You've seen it all, Mom. I've I mean. seen it all. I've seen it all. 
Well, of course, television was very big. And my father, right away, I was still at home, he had bought the television. And when we were married, they brought us a beautiful television that we had for years. That was our first television. That, that was great. And of course, my parents never lived to see the iPhones. My father especially, he wouldn't believe taking pictures on a phone and seeing them right away and everything right. happening. And of course, there was a lot of electronics. Some things I like and some things I don't. Jet travel is something that you've told me in the past was, was a, obviously, as we said earlier in the show, you were born the day Lindbergh flew. But, yep. And obviously, both, uh, well, we'll just talk about World War II specifically, aviation became more and more. But oh, suddenly yeah. in the 50s, as we had the baby boom starting, more and more commercial airlines were oh. happening. And if I recall, my grandfather, your father, wanted to go to Russia. Tell me of that story about yes. him father, getting on a plane to Russia in, I think, 1959 or 60, which yeah, was really in, unheard of. He kept in touch with his family in Russia. This is during the, mid, the, the, the strongest part of the Cold War. Yeah, when, when he could. Then things got very bad, and he didn't hear from them, hear from them for years. And then, for some reason, he decided to see if he could put a call in, and he did, and he spoke to them. And then we would hear from them, and they would they would want certain things. They had a uh, his sister had a grandson who only wanted dungarees. He called them, and and she wanted hairnets, and she loved to read, and she loved Agatha Christie. And um, we would buy things, and there was a uh, place that would ship everything to Russia in Irvington, because I went with my father many times, and we would ship packages. Mm -hmm. And then they, my father was going to try to go. He wanted to go to Russia. And we were all very nervous. We thought we'd never see him again. That was what we felt. We went to, it was TWA, Pan Am, the night he left, when you could go in the airport and wave to mm -hmm. people, not like today. They don't let you move. Anyway, he did go to Russia. And he had such a wonderful experience. Both his sisters were alive. One husband was still alive, one had died. One was uh, a surgeon in the army. And my father went and he spent a couple weeks with them. And they lived in a very small apartment, but they took care of him, even though he had money for a hotel. I forget what they called it. But then they always had him for dinner, so he never used the money. It wasn't called script, mm -hmm. it was something, right. something that they called. And when he left to come home, he bought caviar. <laughs> the little he wanted to give everybody a little jar of caviar, and he was wearing a raincoat. And he got off that plane, and his pockets were loaded down with the <laughs> caviar, and and a, and a special doll for Diane. Right. Uh, uh, for Diane. Right. Yeah, well, speaking of speaking girl. of caviar, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Obviously, there's been a lot of inflation in, in the 92 years. Obviously, things cost more. But give us an example of some of the very basic things that you remember buying a childhood and what you would pay for it. I know you always talked about a candy store. Oh, yeah. Well, we had a wonderful candy store, Riesenbachs, and his son was a dentist. I think he made the kids eat the candy, so we'd go to the dentist. We used him, too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
if we were going to the movies on a Saturday, my mother would give us a nickel for candy. We didn't want to put it in the machine. We went to the store and you got a bag full. But sometimes I'd come home for lunch from elementary school. Maybe I didn't like what my mother wanted to give me, so she'd give me a quarter. And we had a little grocery store around the corner called Pops. And she'd say, go buy what you want. And we would buy. I would buy a quarter of a pound of what was called lunch meat. It was probably pressed ham, a white bread, Philadelphia Bonds or Fryhoffers, and Tasty Cake that cost a nickel. And I got three things for a quarter. Now when I go into the convenience store and I still love my Tasty Cake, they're $1.65, the same one. I always tell the man, you know, I'm from Philadelphia. It was only in five cents. Wow. But it's changed. Oh, yeah, of course. And I saw how prices changed. My mother was very, she was very good at math. I don't know why. She was also very good with coupons. Yeah, and coupons. But she would add everything up before they even had it in the register. And I remember seeing coffee, like 39 cents a pound. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can't even get a latte for that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, 92 years old. Yep. What would you say makes a happy life? Is it is it money? Is it things you got to buy, or is it experiences? What? How would you talk about that? Well, first of all, I got to say, you have to love your your husband or your wife, and you have to really love your children. And they have to love you, too, and I know they do. And you have to, money is fine, but money is round. You never know when it's going to disappear. We all know that. You can have good years and you can have bad years. But you have to try to be content. And my mother always taught me never be envious of the next person. You never know what's going to happen. And I always remembered that, and I tried to be that way. And I tried to look on the good side. I I was always that way. I try to look on the good side of life. And, you know, good friends and good families and and people that you respect and that they respect you. I mean, unfortunately, you know, most of my friends are gone and my family. But, you know, now we're building a new family. I have five great-grandchildren. I have six wonderful grandchildren. And, well, just two aren't married, but they're younger. The others are married. No rush. All, They're my kids. No yeah, rush. All, all, all married into good families and have their own children and their own homes. So you look back on your, on your life, and <laughs> I, remember watching, I remember watching years ago commercials for, I think it was Dan and Yogurt, and they would show this one section of the Soviet Union, and these, you know, they would say, if these people live to 100 because they, they ate yogurt. I always remember that yeah, commercial. Yogurt, so yeah. as you sit here at 92 years, and you are a very active 92-year-old, as, as we've talked about, and we have a little bit more to tell about that in a moment, what, what are some of the secrets, the things that you, you feel that you did that, that are why you're sitting here today? Not just sitting here, but you know, sitting here able to have this incredible conversation. The things that got me here? Yeah. The things that got me here. If you had to, you know, give advice, you know, uh, some people, you know, say, well, I never smoked. I never did this or whatever. No, well, I never smoked. First time I took a cigarette as a teenager, I burnt the dress. I never (laughs) smoked again. I, I had no interest in it. I think it was just, 
you know, try to be a good person. My mother used to say, you're very loyal to your friends. And, and I tried to be, and to my family. And, uh, and I, uh, I'm not a very religious person, but I do believe in God. And I do believe that someone's watching over me, and I'm grateful for that. I'm not saying I did everything wonderful. I probably did some things that weren't so great. But I do feel that I tried to take the right path in life. <laughs> How does Candy fit into that? Because anyone who knows B. Slater knows that if you yeah, come I to her a, house, well, she has what's known as a candy drawer. Um, and every one of my friends growing up to my, my kids, to my nieces, nephews, and great nieces and nephews, it's the first place they go. But you've loved candy. You've eaten I've candy your whole life. <laughs> I was always a sweet eater. I was never a big eater, and I was a terrible one. I would never try foods. But, you know, I ate what I liked, mm -hmm. and it worked. Right. And I loved candy. I always did. And uh, I, I regret that I didn't. The one thing I really regret is that I didn't take an exercise program. I should have exercised more. Now I see these young girls and women doing it. And I didn't take a lot of vitamins. Well, let's get back to exercise. So what you talk about, you know, you weren't exercising. How many of your friends were doing a lot of exercise None. back in the 50s, let's say? None, None yeah. that I know. Yeah. I once tried yoga with a friend. And we went to the yoga place. It was in Springfield. And we got our mats and we laid down and we did the yoga. And then they relaxed and I fell asleep. So that was the end of the yoga. But you had never, you never were interested in going for a run or no, well, anything like that? In the later years, we live on the circle. And my husband and I, at night after dinner, we'd walk around the right, circle. which is really the best thing you can do which every day. We did that and until he couldn't do that anymore. And he always used to say to me, straighten up, because he went to a military school. Right. And he had beautiful posture. And he'd say to me, straighten up. And I would try to straighten up. Of course, now it's not so good. Well, let's. But speaking of straightening up, I think it's time we tell everybody about your soul twisting at age 92. On a warm spring night in Asbury Park, New Jersey, right before your birthday, you heard from Maureen Van Zant, and she had another really incredible idea. Tell us about that, well, how that night started. She wanted me... She was in charge of having the women on the stage, the go-go dancers, and she wanted me to be one of the go-go dancers. This is for little Stephen and the From, Disciples of Soul. Yeah, the right. Disciples of Soul. And he was gonna, they were all going to be on the stage. They were debuting their new album, Summer of Sorcery. Yeah, that's right. right. The new album, that was the first night they were going to play the music. And she said, would you like, we'd like to have you be one of the go-go ladies. You know, we want somebody older. And, of course, that was me. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? So we went to Asbury Park, and we decided that's going to be it. And I went backstage, and they gave me We this. did a rehearsal, right? We did a rehearsal first. Oh, yeah. Right? We had a rehearsal. Right. And they gave me this red bow to wear around my neck. 
and the women were so nice. Right, you had Maureen's sister Maureen's and one of her sister friends. sister and one of her right. friends. And they held on to me, and we got, I got on the stage. In front of, you know, a few thousand people yeah, at the Paramount oh Theater God, in Asbury Park. It was a Park. night, a beautiful night down in Asbury in May. It was May, yeah, because it was before right. my birthday. And they danced with me, and the house came down again. It was great. And Stephen, so, Stephen was so excited to have you there. And as you oh, came out, and we'll link to this dance, he kissed oh, her, he, announced he, Queen Bee. The place went, the place went crazy. I want to tell you that he and his wife and his people and his band—they are so wonderful and so nice. They couldn't have been better. So after I performed, right. they said, just sit backstage for a few minutes. And at this point, you think, how could anything, Yeah. you know, this was the most amazing night Yeah, of my life. I'm just going to sit down and relax. Right. And I sat down next to a woman who, she had been helping me, giving me water if I wanted it. But there was some sort of a rumor that Bruce Springsteen may be there. And I said, well, that would be nice. And all of a sudden, he walked in the back, and he sat down next to me, and he put his arm around me. I, the picture, when you look at my face, you can see how stunned I was. I, I think I said, oh, oh, St- Bruce, or I don't even know what I called him. <laughs> I was Hopefully so excited. you called him Bruce. Yeah. And, and you had seen him perform oh, on I, Broadway. Yes. I saw the show on Broadway. Oh, my God, that was fantastic. And obviously, anyone that knows me knows that there was Bruce Springsteen playing throughout this house from from the early 70s on. Mitchell's such a fan. And he, too, is such a good person. Right. And I read his book that he wrote all about his his life and his father. I read I wrote it from, I, I did read it from cover to cover. I could not put it down. It was wonderful. So we got a picture. Because one of the men said, I'm going to take your picture. Well, the special credit to Rich Russo, Rich one Russo of the great DJs that. out there Rich's who friend. does the Jersey and, Guy show on oh Little God. Stevens Underground Garage. And when I looked at him and I said, uh, when I saw that picture, and it's now hanging in my living room, mm-hmm. they made a copy for me. It was very exciting. Okay. So my life has been quite exciting in these last ten years since my husband passed away, yeah. I will say. Well, and the reason... The reason that your life has been exciting is that you have a saying and you've said this since I was a little kid when I thought about acting as a career and I was going to audition for a program at Northwestern University that were only going to accept 10 boys and 10 girls and thousands of people and you said you know you ought to try out you never know Okay, and I I was fortunate enough and got selected and and had that experience. And I I, want to talk about the you never know, because there is one other story I think we should share that, you know, has to do with our family that has to do with you never know. I was watching Rachel Ray one morning and she talked that she's going to have a contest. Anyone can, can try out and they're going to be able to do a cookbook, they're going to be on her show, they're going to win prizes. Well, my niece, uh, my granddaughter, uh, Fanny, who lives in North Carolina, Jeffrey's daughter, loves to cook, and she's really very talented. So I I didn't call her, I sent her a text. Which which, which is really incredible at 90 years old. Yeah, <laughs> I text her, and I said, Fanny, I'm watching Rachel Ray, I know she liked that show, 
And I said, there's going to be a contest. Why don't you look into it? And she did. And believe it or not, she won the contest. She was on the show. We went that day. She won. Mm -hmm. We were allowed to come. We were all standing with Rachel Ray. And Fanny won the prize. They helped her publish a, a cookbook. She wrote a cookbook. And it was just unbelievable. And it continues because she's been doing a number of shows on the Food Network, yes. in, including a show well, uh, called The Best Thing, The Kitchen, and also The Best Thing I Ever Ate. Yes. And you could also see Beast later in an episode of The Best Thing I Ever Ate at the very famous Milburn Deli. Anybody that's from New Jersey knows the Milburn Deli, oh, and yeah. oh, you're in that episode. I was in that. We were eating our fa her famous sandwich, the Friday special which is tuna and egg salad, and really good. And uh, the Milburn Deli, they were very nice to us, and we were able to bring a few people, and everybody got the sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> so let's end on this. Oh, I have to do one thing for Leslie. Go ahead. Okay, something from my childhood. When we would go to get shoes at the shoe store before school started, it was a lovely store. The name happened to be Harrison's in Philly. And they would measure your shoe, your feet like they still do. But then they had this machine where you put your feet in. It was an x-ray machine to see how your toes were. Well, when Leslie heard about that, and I told her that story, she couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. Yeah, that they would x-ray your feet. But who knew that x-ray was so bad? We didn't know. <laughs> I had an x-ray when I was pregnant with Diane yeah. because I was late. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, well, we'll do an x-ray. Right. Oh, my God, they'd never do that today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, times have changed. Well, it must have helped her read. She's a great reader, my sister. So yeah. maybe there was something something <laughs> yeah, from the x-ray. Okay? Something and, and And one of the great Beatle fans. So, so what would you like to tell your great-grandchildren's children when yeah. they listen to this recording I don't know, decades from now, 50, 60 years into the future. Here's your opportunity to send them a message. Well, to all those that are here and that will be born in future years, I just want to tell you to try and marry someone who respects you and loves you and that you love and have a wonderful life and live to the fullest and remember you know, it's not always going to be perfect. There'll be ups and downs, but you can weather the storm and just respect your family and respect the older people. I mean, you know, some of us are here longer than others, and maybe it's just who's watching over us, as I said before, or maybe it's the good genes that my father had and his sisters. But you know what? You're going to make your life and you're going to make friends, and you're going to live, and you're going to have a wonderful life. And remember me, if they talk about me, about your grandmother B. And you can talk about my ice cream that I loved, and my malted milks, and my candy drawer, and all my thank you notes that I've always written that are very hard to come by today because everything is on the computer. But that's all right, too. I guess we have to live and let live as it goes. And I want to thank you, Mitchell, for, for doing this. This has been wonderful. Well, and uh, continue doing it and interview a lot of people 
that are interesting because people like to hear these things. Well, that's exactly why we're doing this interview today. And I, I gave a lot of thought on how I would end this episode. I cannot possibly put into words how lucky I am to be able to not only have you, Mom, in my life, but be able to share you with the world. Not just on this podcast, but with all of the wonderful fans you have from New Jersey to Australia, throughout Europe, Canada. I've watched these people take selfies with you after you danced on stage with Stephen and, and Maureen, and then hanging with Bruce, who was anyone that has listened to the show or knows me at all, will be the, an image that I will never forget. And thank you to my friend Rich Russo again for that. But for now, thank you for sharing your stories from the last 92 years. And I can't wait to see what your next adventure will be. Because as you always say, you never know. So unfortunately, due to copyright laws, I can't play a song to end this show. But I can read you a few of the lyrics from it. And you heard Bruce sing this song, The Wish, live when you went to see him on Broadway. It ain't no phone call on Sunday, flowers, or a Mother's Day card. It ain't a house on a hill with a garden and a nice little yard. I got my hot rod on Bond Street. I'm older, but you'll know me in a glance. We'll find ourselves a little rock and roll bar, and baby, we'll go out and dance. And you've danced for 92 years, and I know you'll continue to do that. Well, that's our show this week, and thanks to Resonate Recording for the post-production, and thank you so much for listening and following the show on Spotify. And remember, when it comes to saving for at least the next 92 years or so, pay yourself first. Have a great week.